Well, church, on, on a short list of any historian overview of the best presidents in the history of our nation, on a short list of four or five, on everybody's list, almost, I think, without exception, would, would be this man. And, and yet, those same historians would say that, that really, that if Abraham Lincoln ran today, he would probably would be unelectable because he wasn't very good looking. And they said as a speaker, he was incredibly boring, great content, but terrible delivery. And in an age of the medium is the message, and in an age of looks, wouldn't happen. Or remember 1960? No, you don't. I mean, if you don't. In 1960, there was a presidential election. This is only the third of four debates between a very telegenic, handsome, young senator from Massachusetts named John Kennedy running against a man who had been vice president for eight years named Richard Nixon. In the, in the first debate, uh, Nixon had banged his knee in the campaign, and the knee had swollen. He'd had some and he'd become sick, a staph infection, lost 20 pounds, was feeling very bad, and he always, he said after 30 seconds after shaving, he had a 5 o'clock shadow. And, and so he, he, the first debate, and this election was a razor-thin election. In the first debate, Nixon's staff said, well, we're going to put something on called instant shave. It's a, it's a makeup that, that hides the 5 o'clock shadow. And they put him in a gray suit, in a black and white TV medium. And, and in the middle of the debate, the instant shave started caking on his face and he started sweating profusely under the glare of the TV lights. And he looked horrible. And while he won the debate on content, he lost the debate on appeal. And many feel like that's when the election turned. And Kennedy won by a razor-thin margin. In fact, Mayor Daley from Chicago, in observing that debate, says, goodness gracious, have they already embalmed Nixon before he's dead? <laughs> so, so similarly, similarly, the book of 2 Corinthians is about a group of people that had come into the church at Corinth, and they had been saying spurious things about Paul. He's really not an apostle. And one, one thing they said about Paul is, is they, they said some very critical things about his appearance and his speaking ability. They said, as Paul says in chapter 10, verse 10, they said, he says, for they say, they say these, these infiltrators, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. He's a poor speaker and he's not good looking. And then he says later in chapter 11, verse 5, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles, even if I am unskilled in speaking. I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. And Paul says, I'll give it to him. He says, I'm not a great orator. I'll give it to him. I'm not that good looking. I'll give it to you. But, but instead of dealing with these issues, when these men we saw last week, they came into, ten, into town with letters of introduction and recommendations, saying they were wonderful, they were gracious, and they were probably winsome and handsome and could, are humorous. But Paul goes straight to the issue, which is the message. 
And the, and the issue of, of in, in 2 Corinthians is these men were preaching a different Jesus, he says. They were preaching a different gospel. And that's the heart of the issue. Paul says, I'm not going to debate being good looking. I'm not going to talk about being a great orator. He says, I've already said in my previous letter to you that I came to you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. Uh, yeah. But I also resolved to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified. And so the, the, the message of the super apostles was this. We're, we're, going to, we're going to use the law, the Mosaic law, as a means of self-justification. Self-justification. And, and Paul says, really, the, the, the reality is Christ. He says, when I went to Corinth, when I was there for 18 months with you people, this was my message. The Christ is Jesus. He says, I went to the synagogue Sabbath after Sabbath. And I preached that the, that, that the long-awaited-for Messiah, the anointed one, is Jesus. That's the message. He says, but these men are using the law as a means to be made right with God. There, there is a law of self-justification and self-congratulation. It says, conversely, we know this from Romans chapter 3, verse 20. For by the works of the law... No human being will ever be made right or justified in God's sight. Rather, through the law, we become aware of our sin. The law points us to Christ. The law points us to the coming Messiah, and the coming Messiah is Jesus. He says later in John chapter, or excuse me, Romans chapter 8, verse 3, For God has done what the law weakened could not do by the flesh. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. The law could not make us right with God. What the law could not do, God did by sending his son. And he says to the church at Galatia, who is going through the same type of trauma, chapter 2, verse 16, he says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul said you, you, cannot, you cannot use the law as a means of self-justification, because that's not the purpose of the law. The law points us for, out the need for a Savior. And then he goes to this whole issue in 2 Corinthians 3, an enacted parable. See, when Moses in Exodus went into the presence of the Lord, he would come out and his face would be glowing. And he would put a veil over his face so that the people would not be traumatized by the glow from his face. But, but the, the glow, listen, the glow was a fading glory. In the presence of the Lord, come out, fading glory. In the presence of the Lord, come out, fading glory. And, and, and Paul is saying this is an enacted parable. Listen, verse 7. Now if the ministry of death, the law, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory, which was being brought to an end. Did you hear that? It's brought to an end. It's fading. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? More glory. 
For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the law, which points out our sin, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Far exceed it. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it, the glory of Christ. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So, so he says that, that it's being brought to an end. He says that the new ministry of the Spirit that's fulfilled in Christ has even more glory. It will exceed the Old Testament in its glory. It is a glory that surpasses all that's come before it, and it is permanent. And Paul says, don't be, don't be schnookered by this. He said, he said these men are, are teaching that through self work, you're justified. This is really the whole purpose of the law was to point to Christ, to show us our need for a Savior. So, so the, the, the Shekinah glory was glorious, but behold the glory of Christ. For example, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, Solomon has just built the temple. Listen to this. This is really cool. As Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, the Shekinah glory, the glory that dwells. And, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now that would be powerful. Or, or, or the pillar of fire by night and cloud by day. That would be powerful. But listen to this. John 1. And God, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only one from the Father. Not only that, listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Charles Hodge, the great Princetonian theologian, systematic theologian, Theologian par excellence said, said, said the, the glory of the Old Testament was wonderful, but what is the glory that dwelt in the tabernacle compared to the glory of Christ that fills our souls? And what Paul is saying is, says, behold, the glory that has come and has been fulfilled and realized in the person and work of Christ. In, in the bulletin, there's a statement by John Calvin who says that, says, he said this about, about the use of the law, the, the office of the law, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, was to show us the, the, the disease in such a way that it shows us no hope of a cure. Whereas the office of the gospel is to bring a remedy to those who are past hope. The gospel brings hope to those who are dead in their sins. Dark is the stain that I cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? 
Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow I shall be today. Behold the glory of the cross. In Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, uh, Faithful is talking about how he came to know the Lord. It's an allegory. And, and Faithful says, I was going along the road and one came up upon me and hit me in the head and knocked me to the ground. And he hit me again and I said, Sir, have mercy upon me. And he says, I don't know what mercy is. I'm waiting for mercy. And he said the man's name was Moses. It was the law. And he said, as he was about to hit me again and undo me, one came and said, forbear, friend, forbear. And he touched me and he walked by. And as he walked by, he had nail prints in his hand and a spear mark in his side. See, what we cannot do in our own strength, what the law was never meant to do, God did for us in Christ. The law is a signpost pointing to Christ. This, and so Paul is just zealous for the gospel. This, this. So you've got, on one side, you've got self-justification before God, which leads to self-congratulation, I think. Remember in Luke 18, the, the Pharisee was in the temple and he said, Lord, I, I thank you that I'm not like that dirty tax collector in the corner. I fast twice a week. I tithe. I'm a good guy. I should be on your 18. You work your way into the presence of God. On the other hand, is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone. God made him who knew no sin to be righteousness for us. 2 Corinthians 5, Martin Luther said, the righteousness of another which is instilled from outside of us. He called that alien righteousness, kind of a zombie type thing, you know, outside of us. And let me say, as you look at the little diagram, every world religion, every world religion is on the left except the Christian faith. If, if you go to a Buddhist and you say, how can I be made right with the God, whatever his name may be, they say, well, you have the four noble truths and you have the eightfold path. And as you walk in that and as you progress better from lifetime to lifetime, eventually you'll be accepted into the spirit of the God, however you may define him. But it's all self-justification. If you go to an Islamic person today and you say, how can I get to Islamic heaven? They say, well, here, here is the Quran and here's the Hadith, the sayings around the Quran. Here's, if you walk in obedience to this book, essentially observing the five pillars of Islam, and you walk in obedience to this book, maybe, maybe, at the end of your life, your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds, and you'll be welcomed into Islamic heaven. If you go to a Hindu that predates Buddhism, if you go to Hindu, say, how, how can I be made right with the God who is? And so however you want to find the God who is. If you live a good life and you go through the transmigration, so eventually through self-effort and work and, and, and an aesthetic spirit, you will be absorbed into the universe. And every spin-off of the Christian faith, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormon, is all self-congratulatory, self-work. That's what the people were saying here at Corinth. And Paul says, behold the glory of Christ. <sighs> John chapter 3, a good man, a good man, a kind man, a Pharisee named Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. And he began this dialogue with Christ and he says, Lord, we, or teacher, we know that you're sent from God because nobody can do the signs you're doing unless God is with him. 
And Jesus stops him. He answers the question that he knows Nicodemus is going to ask without going through all these introductory comments. He says, Nicodemus, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. At that point, Nicodemus drops his professional decorum. He says, what what, what do you mean born again? Do I enter back up into my mother's womb? (laughs) That's silly. I can't do that. He says, no, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Jesus says to us this morning, you must be born again through faith in the work of Christ. That's just it. Behold the exceeding greatness of the glory of Christ. It's, it's like you're out and someone is pointing. They're pointing. Okay? They're, they're pointing. And you stand there and you, you look at the finger. You go, well, look at that finger. Don't, don't be an idiot. When someone points, you don't look at the finger. You look at what they may be pointing to. Maybe a beautiful mountain range. See, the, the law points to the glory of Christ. It prefigures Christ. Westminster said it was given to a church under age until the fullness of the gospel, the complete revelation of God in Christ came. Behold the glory of Christ, the, the law says. And these people would come along and they would say, no, we, we are, we're, we're using the law as a means of self-justification. So I look at this and I get three points. Number one is this. There's a permanent glory in Christ in the gospel that, that exceeds anything that's ever been given. It is the ultimate reality. In, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says to his men, he says, blessed are your eyes and what they see and your ears and what they hear. For I tell you that many righteous men long to see the things you see, but they didn't see it. And they longed to hear the things that you hear, and they did not hear it. He says, you stand on the precipice of the kingdom age. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter's talking talking about the gospel. He says this, it was revealed to them, the prophets of old, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Angels longed to look into the glory of the gospel that was fully revealed in Christ. There is a panting, come Lord Jesus. There is, let us see the glory of the gospel. And that's why Paul stood in the synagogue and says, I have one message, the anointed one is Jesus. The Messiah is Jesus. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let me ask you this. Do you see the glory of the gospel? Do you see the Shekinah glory of Christ that is exceedingly more abundant than anything that ever came before are you transfixed by the wonder of Christ? I was, go on, I was just singing some hymns this week. Uh, Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature. It says, Son of God and Son of Man, Thee will I honor, Thee will I 
Worship thou my soul's glory, joy, and crown. Do I see the glory of Christ who is fairer than all? Not, not do you affirm, but do you see it? Do you taste it? Jesus says we should love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I thought of another hymn. My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. For thee, all the folly of sin I resign. My blessed Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Now, my emotions ebb and flow, and my love ebbs and flow. And it's, it's like this, you know, it's, it's like the stock return, you know. But I want the trajectory of my heart to be saint, to say this, my Jesus, I love thee. Not I, I know about thee, not I, I, but I love thee. Because I think this is such good theology. I know that are mine for, for thee, because of you, because I've seen you, all the folly of sin resi- I resign. More about that next week and later. But Or this little song I learned when I was a new Christian, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow what? Strangely dim. Huh? In the light of his glory and grace. How do you walk in obedience? You see Jesus. How, 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 how do you walk in obedience? You see Jesus. You glory in Jesus. And I say to those of us who are older, do you love the Lord? You say, well, I remember when I first became a believer and how all these things were new, and man, I just, it's a little different now. Repent. Repent. I'm going to tell you, when I walk down that hallway and I see people married 45 and 50 years holding hands and cutting eyes at each other, my heart rejoices. They're not saying, well, when we were young, we found corners and made out. But now we're old and we're just more mature and our love is just understood. It's just understood. I pray God give us, gives us men to say, there may be snow on the roof, but there's fire in the furnace. <laughs> there's fire in the furnace. There may not be anything on the roof, but there's fire in the furnace. <laughs> you see, how about your walk with, seriously, your walk with the Lord? Man, I want to love Jesus because he's the glorious one. Because it exceeds anything that ever came before and ever will come. He is the sine qua non. He is it. He is God in the flesh. The second thing I see here is he says later in this passage, verse 12, he says, since we have such a hope, the glory of the gospel, he says, we are very bold. We're very bold. Not, not like Moses who put a veil on his face so that the Israelites wouldn't gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. But he says, we're bold. And one of the themes of this little book is that, is that we're bold. 2 Corinthians 2, 17. It says, for we are not like so many who peddle the word of God for we are men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God to speak in 
Christ, or chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, he talks about them being given to the Christ. Listen, he says, I, I, am, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He says, I have a jealousy for you. I want you to be totally committed to Christ. I want you to understand this gospel of grace. He says, I'm bold. I'm bold. Chapter 12, verse 19 says, Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding beloved ones. He says, you know, I'm not defending myself. I'm just speaking it out. See, when you're bold, he says, I am bold because he realized the people got the gospel. See, I have young pastors ask me, how, how do you sustain it? How do you sustain it? I've been in this church more than most of them have been alive longer. So that's amazing to me. And I'm still young. How do you sustain it? Here's my answer, in part. I said, you, you ask God to let you be the pastor of a church made up of regenerate people. That's not a very long answer. I said, well, there are a lot of people that go to church that don't know Jesus. But if you, if you have men and women who have truly come to know Christ and they love the gospel, they have received the Holy Spirit. And when people have the Holy Spirit and you stand up and you open the book and they say you're trying to grasp the truth of the book, they respond. Now, we all struggle, we all sin, we all fall short. But when you have the Holy Spirit, you can be bold with people. When, when, the, when the, those who receive it and those who teach it have the Holy Spirit, there, there's, there's a, a boldness there. As you speak to one another the truths of the Bible, you can be bold because the Holy Spirit is teaching us. Even now, the Holy Spirit is teaching us. And then thirdly, he says, only in Christ is the veil removed. Verse 16 says, but, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The, the veil of self-justification, this veil of self-congratulation is because say, it's only in Christ that is taken away. And by way of application, the, the veil of what removes the veil of arrogance? Beholding Christ. What removes the veil or the covering of lust? Beholding Christ. How about anger? Beholding Christ. This is a great statement from a C.S. Lewis, you know, a little essay called Is Theology Poetry? I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. That's ah, powerful. When you see Christ, you, get a, you understand life. You understand people better who need patience. You understand yourself better. You need patience. 
not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. See, I, I, need, I need a point of reference. Hebrews 4, to judge the intentions and the thoughts of my heart and my mind. I need a reference point. I need it to be spoken among the people of God. I need people of God who speak the word into my life. Now, a few weeks ago, I had a back issue, fractured my back. Incredible pain. I go to MUSC, and they give me morphine on the way there. I'm so glad. <laughs> and uh, I got there, and they gave me some more morphine. And uh, and I was having conversations with people, probably saying things I should not have said. You know, you get kind of kind of freed up. And and uh, so so I get home, and they give me this pain medication. And I go, you know. I, I appreciate that physical therapist coming and saying that you can still lift 25 pounds with each arm if you want to. And my wife and children said, Dad, that, that was never said to you. I was, she came and said 25 pounds. And I said, can I go to the gym and do some lightweight training? She said, absolutely. I said, you never had that conversation. She said, don't lift anything more than a milk bottle. I said, oh. I said, Did anybody come and say you can bend like you want to? No. They said, don't bend. Lay flat on your back. I said, oh, I had these conversations that didn't happen. And then I had the strong pain medication. I was in and out. And so Sunday, I woke up and I hadn't slept and I'd been in and out. And I said, you know, I've had all these. I even dreamed that Clemson beat Georgia. <laughs> and a guy from this church called the deciding touchdown. They said, that happened. I said, hallelujah, praise God, amen. So what I'm saying is, listen, in life, listen, a lot of times we hear things and we see things too subjectively. We need a place to go that will judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart. We need a community of faith that speaks Christ into our life. Behold in Christ the fullness of God. Behold, the Shekinah glory has been eclipsed by the wonder of Jesus. There's a little book called Prince Caspian. Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis. In Prince Caspian, the children go back to Narnia and they have yet to see Aslan, the great lion who represents Christ in this mythical kingdom. And then on a glad and glorious night, the smallest child named Lucy finally sees Aslan again. This is what Lewis writes. She never stopped to think whether he was a friendly lion or not. She rushed up to him. She felt her heart would burst if she lost a moment. And the next thing she knew was that she was kissing him and putting her arms as far around his massive neck as she could and burying her face in the beautiful rich silkiness of his mane. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy, at last. The great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell half sitting and half lying between his front paws and he bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her and she gazed up into the large wise face Welcome, child, he said. Aslan said, Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not, not because you're bigger. 
I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. That's the way it should be, church. Behold the glory of Christ. Christ.